Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. Welcome to this week's Thin Former. It is the 12th of November 2020 and I am Stephen Otani. On this week's program, we feature the US election wrap-up. Biden is in and Trump is out. Emily Johnson provides us with a detailed report in everything you need to know about the future of America and the direction it is now heading in. We also have lots to celebrate as this week is NADOC week, a week to celebrate the history, culture and achievements of our traditional landowners. We speak to some special guests as to why this week is important to all of us Australians and how you can participate and get involved. And lastly, the boys at World Wide Wave talk about reported and unreported hate crime towards the LGBT community over in the UK. All this coming up, so stay tuned. Joy. I'm Emily Johnson, reporting for the Informer on Joy and the Community Radio Network. Most of the votes have been counted and the results are in. Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States of America. Here's what he said about his win. The people of this nation have spoken. They've delivered us a clear victory, a convincing victory, a victory for we the people. We've won with the most votes ever cast on presidential ticket in the history of the nation. 74 million. What I must admit has surprised me. Tonight, we're seeing all over this nation, all cities and all parts of the country, indeed across the world, an outpouring of joy, of hope, renewed faith, and tomorrow, bring a better day. You will notice his focus on the votes. Biden secured over 76 million votes, more than any other president-elect in history. And the Electoral College seems set to award him at least 290 votes, so he clearly has earned his return to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But it's not all smooth sailing from here, with Trump saying this. Good evening. I'd like to provide the American people with an update on our efforts to protect the integrity of our very important 2020 election. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. If you count the votes that came in late, we're looking at them very strongly. But a lot of votes came in late. We won these and many other victories despite historic election interference from big media, big money and big tech. As everybody saw, we won by historic numbers. His saying this after the media called the election for Biden is not a surprise. Before the election had even begun, Trump was talking about voter fraud and taking particular aim at mail-in ballots. It's these ballots that he is referring to when he says votes that came in late. Because COVID-19 is a partisan issue in the states, many Trump supporters ignored all cautions regarding the pandemic and chose to vote in person on the day of the election, while Democrats chose to vote by mail-in ballot so as to avoid being forced to be in close proximity to others. Trump is filing lawsuits across many states to try throw out the election results, 
begin a recount, and stop the counting of mail-in ballots. If successful, he could win as the majority of people these actions would disenfranchise are Biden voters. Democrats are not the only Americans who would become voiceless through the discounting of postal votes. This move would also see Americans living overseas and all the American troops currently deployed rendered voteless in what is shaping up to be one of the most important and contentious elections in history. It would be easy to disregard Trump's rants over voter fraud as to many people they read as ridiculous and almost infantile. But it would be a mistake to not take what he says seriously, as he is not the only one saying it. If any major irregularities occurred this time of a magnitude that would affect the outcome, then every single American should want them to be brought to light. And if Democrats feel confident they have not occurred, they should have no reason to fear any extra scrutiny. In the United States of America, all legal ballots must be counted. Any illegal ballots must not be counted. The process should be transparent or observable by all sides, and the courts are here to work through concerns. That was Republican Senator Mitch McConnell supporting Trump's decision to challenge the election outcome in courts. McConnell will continue being a member of the Senate well through Biden's presidency, so his steadfast support of Trump signifies that the soon-to-be former president will continue being a presence in the American political sphere well after he leaves the White House. Although many of the more moderate Republicans have begun to distance themselves from Trump's divisive rhetoric, it's fair to say that Trump still has many supporters in the Senate, in Congress, and across many state governments. Given that there has been absolutely no evidence of corruption or interference on behalf of Democrats in this election, it's unlikely that any of Trump's legal challenges will be successful. But this is still not the victory Biden and his supporters were hoping for. Still, his acceptance speech contained many notes of hope. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. Who doesn't see red states and blue states only sees the United States and work with all my heart, with the confidence of the whole people to win the confidence of all of you. And for that is what America, I believe, is about. It's about people. And that's what our administration will be all about. I sought this office to restore the soul of America to rebuild the backbone of this nation, the middle class, and to make America respected around the world again. And to unite us here at home. It's the honor of my lifetime that so many millions of Americans have voted for that vision. And now the work of making that vision is real. It's a task, the task of our time with faith in America and in each other, with love of country, a thirst for justice. Let us be the nation that we know we can be, a nation united, a nation strengthened, a nation healed. The United States of America, ladies and gentlemen, there's never, never been anything we've tried we've not been able to do. Spread the faith. God love you all. May God bless America and may God protect our troops. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And hope is warranted for many. Despite the extreme division we have seen in this election, and despite the concerning challenges to democracy, 
some good has come from this election, namely in terms of diversity across both the federal and state governments. In 2020, over 1,000 LGBTQIA+ people ran for office in the United States, according to the LGBTQ Victory Fund. That's a 41% increase from the 2018 midterms. Having an increase in queer representation across American governments is vital, as many protections for LGBTQIA+ people were either weakened or removed over the course of Trump's presidency, including protections for transgender people in schools. Other things that became precarious over the past four years were protections for queer people accessing healthcare, the ability for transgender people to access homeless shelters, and even marriage equality has been flagged as under threat. With Supreme Court justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito saying the 2015 decision that led to legislation should be overturned. With Trump soon to be out, Biden in, and Democrats still making up the majority of Congress. There is hope that the erasures of LGBTQIA+ rights will either slow or cease. The most optimistic among us are thinking the next four years will see rights expand, but only time will tell. Regardless, history was made many times over on November fourth, with the election of numerous LGBTQIA+ people, including Sarah McBride, who is the first ever openly transgender person to be elected to a state senate. She is now the highest-ranking transgender elected official. This is not the first time she's made history. She was also the first transgender person to speak at a Democratic convention back in 2016. Here's what she said then: "My name is Sarah McBride, and I am a proud transgender American. I came out as transgender while serving as student body president in college. At the time, I was scared." I worried that my dreams and my identity were mutually exclusive. Since then, though, I've seen that change is possible. But despite our progress, so much work remains. Will we be a nation where there's only one way to love, only one way to look, and only one way to live, or will we be a nation where everyone has the freedom to live openly and equally, a nation that's stronger together? Her words then remain true now, as counts continued. Vermont elected Taylor Smalls for the State House of Representatives, and Kansas elected Stephanie Byers for the State House of Representatives, the first two transgender people to be elected to state legislatures. Adrian Tam of Hawaii also made history this November by becoming the first openly gay elected official in Hawaii after he won a position in the state legislature. In New York, we saw a win for Richie Torres, who is now the first openly gay Afro-Latino man elected in Congress. Joining him is another New Yorker, Mondaire Jones, who is the first openly gay Black candidate elected to Congress. Florida, New York, Georgia, and Tennessee also all clocked in firsts at the state level in terms of Black queer representation, with the states awash in a rainbow wave of firsts. And many other LGBTQIA+ people winning re-election across all levels of government. There are now just under 700 openly LGBTQIA+ elected officials in America. These results in 2020 are part of a broader trend that has seen more and more queer people elected to positions of power. This is in line with the growing acceptance of LGBTQIA+ communities in America. Having this representation will doubtlessly be a boon for queer communities both in and out of the U.S., as it will help with the normalization of identities beyond cisgender heterosexuality.
Also, these elected officials can theoretically use their power to increase rights and strengthen protections, though we'll have to wait and see if this happens. One race that is not yet over and deserves special attention is the Senate race in Georgia, which was undecided on election night and has now gone into a runoff election. Incumbent Senator Kelly Loeffler has recently sponsored a bill which would see transgender women and girls banned from playing women's sports, both professionally and at a community level. If she wins this special election, this bill will have a greater chance of passing, and transgender girls and women will become further locked out of the things we all enjoy. Although it is excellent to be able to celebrate historic wins, we mustn't let the progress blind us from the work that still needs to be done to achieve equality and ensure protection. I'm Emily Johnson, reporting for The Informer on Joy and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You're listening to a Joy podcast. To check out more podcasts from Joy 94.9, head to joy.org.au. This is Bo Driscoll reporting for The Informer on Joy 94.9 and the Community Radio Network. NAIDOC Week is this week, and it's a celebration that's held across Australia each year to celebrate the history, culture and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. NAIDOC is celebrated not only in Indigenous communities, but by Australians from all walks of life. The week is a great opportunity to participate in a great range of activities and to support your local Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. We spoke with founding director and CEO of Redfern-based Black, Will Trulin, about this week and what it means to him and other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. NAIDOC Week is um, important for the Indigenous community because it provides um, it provides visibility, you know, um, in all of its essence. So um, obviously NAIDOC is a week that's given by the government. It's not a week that we coined as Aboriginal people and there's a long history of it. I would encourage people to understand the history of NAIDOC. But essentially for, you know, communities around the country, um, NAIDOC is an opportunity to that, um, showcase um, what does black excellence or Aboriginal excellence look like in this country in all of its way, shape, you know, shapes and forms. Because what tends to happen, particularly um, in the Aboriginal space, is that we tend to focus on our athletes and our, so we celebrate our athletes, but there are so many amazing community members that do incredible um, work through um, not just the one week of the year, but throughout the course of the year. And NAIDOC's an opportunity to showcase, celebrate, knowledge, connect, um, and and bring to the forefront, you know, how amazing and deadly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture is in this country. And is there more importance for the LGBTIQA plus Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have exposure? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And intersectionality is a bit of a buzzword that tends, tends to um, be thrown around, particularly um, when we talk about um, multiple... Um, um, colliding kind of identifies as individuals, right? And um, the interesting thing about Aboriginal people, and I, I can only speak from my experience and my um, and my connections and my family, um, our our queer identity or, or our identity as we relate within the kind of LGBTQ space um, might be three or four um, things that um, are removed, if that makes sense. So being a gay black man or an you know, a queer Aboriginal man. I don't identify as just being a queer Aboriginal man. Like for you know, my my identity as a, as an Aboriginal person is what I is what I pride myself in. So when we talk about understanding, um, you know, queer culture within Aboriginal context, it's really complex and dynamic. And 
understanding that queer people you know have been a part of kinship and family for you know since existence but it's not something that we identify with now i'm really um very aware that that's a different story within our trans community our brother boys and sister girls because of their um because of their lived experience but you know as a as a as a aboriginal queer man that is you know one of my three or four different hats that i wear but at the forefront of it it's 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 me as an aboriginal man so when it comes to nadoc or it comes to queer people's role or queer people, queer black people within the roles of NAIDOC, you only have to look to the arts industry, you know, the dance and music and, 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 and theatre. And it's, we have, you know, queer performers who perform and dance throughout NAIDOC and we've always had a role within that. So um, understanding the complexity of, um, I guess, um, identity and culture and how they collide is really important for NAIDOC, you know, as it relates to it. But it doesn't actually define the actual NAIDOC itself, if that makes sense. It's more about um, acknowledging that, yes, there are um, our rainbow community or our queer community has always played a significant role and always will play a significant role um, and will continue playing a significant role. It's around how... Um, how um, particularly our Aboriginal communities acknowledge that and that's where we find um, where a lot of the work needs to happen so it's not so much the external um, place but within NAIDOC how do we have representation to our own community saying that queer black people have been a part of your kinship and your family and your communities who have um, who have been participated significantly whether it be through the arts or culture or community organizations or community growth work we've been a part of that that groundbreaking work and we tend to sometimes get forgotten we don't get spoken about but we've always been there so i always look as opportunity for, for nadoc um as a way to promote you know queer black excellence and showcase you know our amazing performers our drag queens our dancers our artists our amazing community workers who are you know our social workers are out there doing the work and you know and that for me is a real um you know a really important part of nadoc um particularly for our community because it's an opportunity for us to educate it is important that this community is celebrated. However, as it was mentioned earlier, this week was not chosen by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but was chosen by non-Indigenous people. Very personal, unfortunately, and mm-hmm. um, and as Aboriginal people, we're really complex and diverse. And you know, I each community and each nation and each um, clan group are very different and have their own traditions and customs. So, taking that into context, what I'm trying to get at is that Aboriginal communities um, they, um, accept and will. Um, I guess, take, approach things differently. So I take it, I always try to come from a strength-based approach and say, well, I use this as an opportunity. Also very aware that, you know, this is a day, a week, sorry, that was given to us by, I guess, Western Westerners or white men um, that, you know, we can do two things with it. We can either choose to not participate in it because it was something that was given to us and culture and celebrating culture and being a part of community and acknowledging black excellence is a year all year round event for us regardless. But I look at this as the opportunity to say, well, now we have a light shined on us for this week. Let's capture that and let's use this as an opportunity to educate so it is a very different experience for different people and you know and, it, and it's based on people's experience with government and trauma and a whole raft of stuff that needs to be considered but i look at this as an opportunity and you know and i always try and use this as a as a way to showcase um like i mentioned showcase and, and and promote what does it mean to be not just black and queer but black and amazing and deadly and that's how i view nadog however this year has been different for everyone due to the COVID 19 pandemic
And this affected NADOC week from being held in July compared to every other year, and it was postponed and moved to November. But what has this year been like for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Really fortunate. Um, Aboriginal people, we stay connected regardless part of who we are it's instinctual as us as um as aboriginal people that we find ways to connect and covid's impacted mob i'm not gonna lie we've had people who are isolated uh, we've had people who have suffered really really bad particularly within the arts industry and a lot of aboriginal people who are um who rely on the arts industry for income and you know and it's been a really really hard slog what it's also though shown is the resilience of our community which i think um doesn't get highlighted within i guess you know, you only have to look at the start of COVID and how everyone struggled and white people had struggled. And it's really interesting because it's like, well, black people have been having these same struggles for, you know, 200 plus years now. You know, the isolation, the segregation, the, you know, the fact that we can't go to the shops, people loss of income, living below the poverty line, the fear of losing homes, right? These are real life examples of Aboriginal people that have been doing this for, for, you know, for 200 years. So what it really showed us as a community is that, you know, we are strong and we are resilient and we have the ability to not just survive but thrive and we will get through this. And that, for me, was the biggest kind of learning other than us, you know, reconnecting through other means and other avenues with programs and food relief programs and us going out to community to deliver, you know, essentials and stuff like that. But this was the real takeaway for me is when I seen my experience from my community and my family and I looked at my friends who are non-Aboriginal and how they've struggled I'm like we were able to survive this in a much different way because of our resilience and our retain and our strength with Aboriginal and that's come from the fight that we've had to fight for 200 plus years so it's a really interesting I think um and I would love to see some research done about it, but the impacts of COVID and how they might have impacted minority groups differently because of the strength and resilience within it, like, I don't know the answer to it, but from my experience and, you know, my community and my connections that I've had with mob, particularly here in Sydney, um, you know, it was a real, real kind of, you know, sense of um, pride moment that I had that I said, Blackfellas, we're strong. You know, out of all adversity and the genocide that happened with colonisation and the fact that we're still here and we're fighting and being resilient and we're thriving even through the pandemic and we've been able to maintain connection, that just speaks to the strength of Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal culture and, you know, and it would be, it's, I think there's some lessons learned that the wider society can learn from around how we manage and how we, how we were able to build that resilience. Black is a young organisation that helps LGBTIQA plus Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through not only the pandemic, but everyday life. Um, Black Aboriginal Corporation was a collective response to community um, through um, the Mardi Gras season of last year. And we got together and we said, you know, I love the fact that Mardi Gras brings mob from all over the country and brings us together to connect and create a flow to walk and march every year and there's a sense of pride, right? And we love that time of the year and it's amazing. But we also know that, that that's one, you know, that's a, that's a ripple in the much larger ocean that we have to continue talking about. And Black Aboriginal Corporation, you know, is not a new concept. You know, Aboriginal organisation have been established, you know, for many, many years and people um, have been doing this work long before us. You know, there's some people that that have paved the way for us as young queer black people to continue that work and so i just want to acknowledge the fact that you know black 
is standing on incredibly large shoulders of some really amazing staunch elders and trans people and activists and community members who have you know come before us to create um opportunities for now us to elevate and 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 to to start operating in a in a, in a western world right and that's what black you know was it was a it was a you know 10 20 30 years of community work that we watched and we we were recipients of and we were able to participate in and it was actually saying we now have capacity we've got a group of people who have capacity and drive and the timing was right and it just happened and it was the waters that collided with everything and it created a beautiful rainbow that said let's just move on what needs to happen now and let's do it by us for us and essentially that's what black was when we started the last September and since you know you know the last 18 months it's just been a snowball effect you know and it was it just spoke to the need of having something like this so we're not funded so we have no government funding whatsoever it is done based on out the backs of our community and it's based on our volunteers and it's based on you know my me as the CEO and giving my time back to my community, my board. We have, you know, we've got seven board members who are all skill-based, you know, from social entrepreneurs to business owners to academics to community members to trans people who who are giving their time and their and their intellectual property and their and sharing their information and knowledge so that we can create opportunities and programs for all LGBTQ plus Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people around this country. Now we are all of you know, in the essence, we're infant. We're a year, 18 months in, but we've achieved a hell of a lot. So this year at our NAIDOC event, um, we held it um, on Monday, on the 9th of November, and we were so proud to launch our first headquarters, our, our home, our base, a safe space for all LGBTQ+, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, an office here in Redfern, in Sydney, that is open to everybody. And we're so proud of the fact that we now have a... She's humble. It's a small little office, but it is a space that our mob can come and connect and sit with us and work out of and it be a safe space. And we've been working really closely with the National Center of Reduce, the National Center of Reduce Excellence, which is where our new home is, to make sure that this space, the whole you know precinct, is a LGBTQ safe space. And you know, and they've been on this journey with us, and, and we wanted. It was an amazing kind of celebration that we had the opportunity to share with some of our communities because. It is the first of um, the first of many safe spaces that are going to be done um, and curated and created by mob for mob. So you know, it's been a hell of a year where we've um, been a lead organisation in creating you know, groundbreaking research around the social emotional well-being of young LGBTQ Aboriginal and Torres Strait people, and that will be used to create a roadmap to support services and organisations and governments in creating policies and programs that's by young people that that's impacted by them and you know this is the first of its kind in the country uh, which we are so proud to release our community report, report this week at our NATO event so you know for us showcasing black excellence isn't about us as an organization it's about our community and building them up and giving them opportunities and we are on a trajectory of being a organization that is going to foster not just queer black excellence but black excellence as a whole and we're so proud of the work that we've done and what we've achieved and in and, and this podcast was produced by joy media you can support joy's diverse sound and diverse community this june by donating to joy radiothon 2024 Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy.